The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. I have loved some ghost or other all my years, dead men, their kisses and their fading eyes, dim in the house of memory, glimmers in twilight air no more. They were not there to say no to me when I wanted them, so it was safe to love them. And dead gods, blind eyes and plaster in the safe museum, the broken hands without the thunderbolt and the lost mouths that could not laugh at prayers I did not make to them. And a worse ghost, the thin, unearthly shadow of tomorrow scudding ahead of my realities that since it never could be overtaken could never disappoint me. Dear shadows, images of bare branches on the snow already melting, images of dwindled sun and the shadows of eclipse running like ghosts of snakes along the ground while the moon's shadow passes, ghosts of ghosts, the twittering echoes of the strengthless dead who do no harm, only the terrible now I dared not love, not the word made flesh, not the incarnation bearing a sword to strike me to the heart, not that which is but is not I, not God or sun or blood or anything real that when I spoke it could not say no to me. For I have loved my own ghost all these years, till there is nothing to say yes to me, till there is only vast and lightless nothing, and in the heart of it not even I. O love, let shadows flee. O living sun, living God, incarnate sword of edged reality, let me be hurt, but let me live enough to die. That is a poem by Joy Davidman. She's an accomplished writer, poet, um, and late wife of C.S. Lewis. And today we have with us Um, a very esteemed guest who's done us the honor of chatting with me today, um, Douglas Gresham, her son. And without further ado, I will introduce him. Hi, Douglas. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm wonderful. How is is it there in Malta? We have torrential tornadoes here in Oklahoma. (laughs) Currently. <laughs> well, we haven't we haven't we haven't had any tornadoes lately in Malta. We did have a uh, hurricane a while back, which knocked down about twelve trees in our gardens. Oh but uh, on the whole, it's now turning slowly, very slowly, which is unusual for Malta, into summer. I think the sun is shining outside. Things are beginning to get warm. Oh well, that is lucky for you. I'm in the middle of a just absolutely torrential downpour for the last twenty four hours or so. <laughs> So if there's a horrible siren in the background, that means I'm going to run for the for the shelter. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I introduced some of your mother's accomplishment, but I forgot to mention that you are, as we discussed, um, an accomplished author, actor, voice actor, producer, newscaster in your own right. Um. And lots of other things, too. And lots of other things, too. I couldn't even list them all. <laughs> Big uh, farmer, dairy farmer, dry, tractor driver, bulldozer driver. You can just go on and on and on if you want. None of which I have done any of that. So. <laughs> there you uh, go. I haven't had a chance yet to read your book about your life with your mother and with uh, and Lewis. Uh, I believe Linton mm-hmm. Times. I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. reading it. I hope you enjoy it. I'm, I am very much looking forward to it. I'm sure I will. But since... That's more your story to tell, obviously. Um, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about who your mother was and her journey 
Um, everybody sort of knows, oh, C.S. Lewis had a wife. Her name was Joy. She passed away. Um, yes. but there's obviously much, much more <laughs> to her. than that's, that's really not a description of her at all, but of a few things that happened to her. So um, we'd love to hear about her, who she was and her life from your perspective. Well, of course, from my perspective, she was mommy. That's about it, really. Um, she was very kind, um, very helpful. She was very, very helpful to me if I needed anything. But the problem is really trying to describe my mother in, in, in well, I've done to a certain extent as best I can in Lenten lands. But the problem is she didn't live long enough. Um, I was I was born in 1945, and I was 14 years old when she died, and she had been sick, very, very, very sick for about five years before that. Oh. Initially, we didn't we didn't know what was wrong, of course. Um, but uh, eventually, when I was about, uh, I suppose, I don't know how old I was exactly, but it was suddenly realised that she was she was uh, smitten with terminal cancer and was unlikely to live a very a very long time at all. And of course, she did die about four years after that diagnosis was made. So it was a childhood, which I think was probably, from most viewpoints, rather difficult. Um, I survived. Uh, I'm here now to talk about it. But it's very difficult to describe my mother because there were so many changes in our lives concerning her uh, as things went on. My mother and my father divorced when I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. And my mother promptly, as soon as she could, she fled from America to England, where she had already met C.S. Lewis and knew him, but only as a friend. And we lived in London while he was living in Oxford. And occasionally he would come to London on business or something and he'd pop in and say hello. And uh, occasionally, we, very occasionally, we would go to Oxford. Eventually, we moved to a place called Headington mm-hmm. and lived in a house, a nice little house there in, in Old High Street, Headington, for about, for about two years. My mother was able to practice her skills as a gardener. She grew most of her own vegetables in the backyard there, in the back garden. She was a great gardener, uh, knew all about um, wild, wild fruits and so forth as well. She was, she was versed and knowledgeable in many, many fields. And as you know, she was also quite a writer. But um, toward the, at the end of that whole scene, of course, came when she was suddenly smitten with cancer and, and dying. And uh, from then on, really, she was she was an invalid in a in a, in a wheelchair. For, sorry, in a, in a hospital bed for a while, and then in a wheelchair. Um, after I had prayed very very uh, powerfully, it turned out, and just as far as I was concerned, it was desperation. I was ten years old, and I'd just been told my mother was dying. And I walked through the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church in Headington Quarry, Oxfordshire. And as I walked into the churchyard, I stepped out of this world into an entirely new environment. Everything was alive. Everything was difficult to describe. Everything was super alive. Every every blade of grass had its own life and its own glowingness about it. Every flower, every every branch, and every tree. And I was made aware that there was a hugely powerful and very grieving presence with me in the churchyard. And he said, though not in loud words, but merely in my mind, if you really cannot make it without your mother, and I remember I'm a 10-year-old child, and I only knew my mother, she was the only person in the world I had at that stage. If you really can't make it, all you have to do is ask, and I can fix it. So I went into the church. I wasn't, very, wasn't a practicing religious child at all those days. And I went to the altar, and I prayed and prayed with every fiber of my being that my mother be allowed to live, because I really didn't think I could make it without her. I had no one else. And he said, okay, it's fixed. Go home, be at peace. And so I did. And she went into remission starting about the day or two, well, like two days later or something like that. And she lived another four years. In that four years, I grew to learn of her immense courage in A, dealing with the pain of her, 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 her dying, um, her cancer killing her, and B, of also managing to stay 
not only lucid and on top of it, but also able to crack jokes about it. The only person I've ever met, uh, ever met who, could, who could, would tell funny jokes about her own disease when she was dying with it. Anyway, she lived, as I say, for four years. And, and in that four years' time, just, just as she was thought to be dying on her deathbed, she and Jack got married in the eyes of God uh, by a very, very fine young priest at that time um, called Peter Bide, a very nice man. And they lived the, probably the happiest four years of either of their lives in that time from then on until my mother finally died. So it's it's difficult to describe what she was. She was she was hugely brave, um, very amusing and humorous. She didn't suffer fools ga- gladly when she was in pain, but she was very gentle with them when she wasn't. Um, and she was in a lot of pain a lot of the time. She was mommy. That's about it, really. That I can I'm projecting a little as I listen to that, only because I have a son who's 15 now. Um, and I'm about the age that your mother was when you first traveled to England. That's a that's the part of the uh, of the book that I'm currently at, <laughs> um, and um, and recently divorced from someone who is similar to at least the fictional account of your father. Um, and so I'm think I'm th- imagining my own son having. I'm not ill at all, of course. Um, so, but I'm just imagining my own son having to. To cope with that, I'm at a loss for words. I'm, I don't, I don't know how to express condolences at this stage for something like that. But I really appreciate you sharing that with me, and especially the, the prayers of a young, of a young man desperate for his, his mother. Yeah, I, I think that, that that to me that was one of the most salient points of my life, because the first time I really begged God for something that I knew He could provide, because He just told me so. But I think one of the most important things I learned from that is when you need something from the Lord, ask. And don't stop asking because he needs to be asked. Absolutely. And it's um, it's not something that most of us as believers are really sort of feelingly alive to, is the fact that we really can ask in that in that way. It's it's almost I mean the the worst thing that could happen the worst thing that could happen when one asks is for God to say no, and he does so very, very gently. And a short while thereafter, one learns suddenly why he said no, and it makes perfect sense. But yeah. in this case, the answer was yes. Absolutely. That's been my experience is that I've been told no, and then I understood. I didn't understand why, and I begged and I pleaded, and then I understood eventually why. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it's, almost, it's almost cheesy to say, but it's, it, it's very much the biblical example of coming like a child, Without all of those, de- those cynicisms between you and yes, him. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think I think if a child, if any child, is desperate enough and has good reason, and there is no reason why God should should um, God doesn't have a valid reason or doesn't have a reason he wants to, to to use as to why that child shouldn't get what he's asking for, the child very often will. And in a desperate situation like mine, obviously the Lord had had plans for my life as much as he had for my mother's. Uh, my mother's the, the plan for my mother was running out, and, it, and and the plan for my life was just starting. I suppose. Yes, and and what and what more desperate situation can we have than 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 pe- begging for the life of our own mother? I mean. Yeah, I think that's probably very true. I'm a, I'm a grown I think one would rather die oneself. Yes, I've, I'm a grown woman, and I would be in the same desperation for my mother, who still lives, but. Mm. Um, 
I can't even imagine at 10 years old when you, you've already, in a sense, lost your father to some degree. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't an easy, an easy time. It was a difficult time in my life, and it went on for quite a while. And and was there any comfort in in the? Well, not a comfort. That's not what I'm asking. Um, I know that in myself, there's been quite the change in how I'm able to re- relate to my children and how I'm able to parent after getting out of the the marriage and and I feel that they actually have, are, have more peace and more rest in our home because it's not continual turmoil and chaos and just dis- distress there's grief but there's not that. the problem we face with the, the, the problem is one of the things that most people don't really understand I believe is that a divorce in a way is worse than a death because you don't have a body to bury there's no termination. There's no termination. You have to live in that situation of being divorced and the man is still around or the woman is still around either way. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be shadowing you. So I think it's, it's in a sense, it's worse than, than, than a death. When, when if, you, for example, one's wife dies, which happens a bit, or one's husband, then you've at least got something terminal, something finished. It's over. It's done with. And you can move on into other things. I think with a divorce, it's far more difficult to move on to other things. I saw my father, mother and father trying that, for example, yeah. and other friends in the past, too. It, 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 is, it is possible, and it, it just takes far more work, I think. Yeah, and, and you can't, uh, with the death, you were at least, if, it's a, if it was a loving marriage, you can remember the, with mm. fondness and with honor, and it's harder sometimes. Of course, of course, yeah. um, yes, of course. But I, and all those things help. I always have hope that at least that there is, that there is in some in some ways improvement at least from from not living in that sort of turmoil of of wondering and desperation. But get, I suppose for you it was one turmoil to the next. Um, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid so. Um, I'm my so mother sorry. died in in, in 1960. Uh, I think it was like 63. Was, I, can't really, I actually can't remember the dates now. I'm useless with dates. But anyway, she died when I was 14. Right. And then about a year and a half later, my father over in America committed suicide. Ugh. And a year and a half after that, Jack died. So that was a pretty rough period of, you know, but I, I sort of, it may sound terrible, but in a way I got used to it. Yeah, I got I, used to the idea that people were going to die on me. And I, so I, I ran out of people, of course. <laughs> And then I had to start thinking to myself a bit more strongly. It sounds terrible as in in the sense that it's a terrible series of experiences. It's terrible for a young person to have to think of in those terms. It doesn't sound, it doesn't reflect terribly on you. And well, no, I don't think, I, I don't think what, what it did, it did, it, it taught me a huge amount about human life and, and, and what happens in it. And it taught me a great deal that I have later and when I became a psychotherapist, um, later used to, to help other people. And I think if you go through a whole lot of things which you later discover in life are useful to helping others who are in, in torment of some form or other, then I think it's pretty obvious that God had a purpose for it all happening, among many other purposes, of course. And it's quite clear that God had a, a particular purpose and took an interest in you from the very beginning, and, and, and I, I'm quite sure that without him, 
most people would collapse under that much sorrow that early in life and that close together. Yes, I think you may be right. I don't know about most people, but a lot of people certainly would. I didn't have any option. There was nowhere else to go. There was nothing else to do. I had to, I had to survive by myself. So I did. Yes, that's... Mind you, mind you, bear in mind that that, 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 that that event, that series of events, didn't actually galvanize me into giving my life to Christ at that point. I, I didn't do that till much, much later in my life. But you, but he was, as you've described, he was, he was present with you, whether, even though you were not yet submitted or... No, he was, yeah, like, I was aware that he was there, and I was aware that he was with me for many years. Um, but the problem was, problem I suffered from, which is actually a bit logical, really, was that everything in my life that I could think of had ended in disaster. So whoever was running it was making a rotten job of it, the way I looked at it at the time. So I wasn't going to turn my life over to someone who really was messing it up. It took me a great many years to realize that I'm probably a great, I probably messed it up a great deal worse than God ever did. Our pers- Certainly did, in fact. Our perspective, especially at that age, is going to be pretty narrow in comparison to his, of understanding what he's, yeah, what he's playing at. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true indeed. Um, I'm sorry, I've lost the plot a bit. Um, I've, gotten, <laughs> okay. I've gotten distracted in empathy. Um, um, can you tell us anything about her, about her work, what you most appreciate about it, or what you would most like people to know about it and understand? Well, I think probably her work, like with all of us, is derived from her own childhood again, or partly partly thereof, and who she wrote, of course, all the books that she read and poems and so on. But um, I am actually one of these unfortunate people who is tone deaf to poetry. Oh, no. Even though I do occasionally. Even though I do occasionally write some myself, but um, when I do, it's, I, I know it's coming from God and not from me. But my mother's poetry, some of it I think is excellent, and some of it I just can't get it, get it, get around. I can't understand. Uh, so I'm not the best person to ask about poetry. However, her novels I found to be fascinating. Uh, she wrote two, Anya and Weeping Bay, I think, and then she wrote a book called um, Smoke on the Mountain, which I think is one of the best, if not the best, interpretation of the Ten Commandments that I have ever come across anywhere in the world. So I, I far prefer my mother's serious works of prose than her her, her, her poetry, because I just, as I say, I'm tone deaf to poetry. I just don't understand it and find it very difficult to, to, to enjoy. There are exceptions, of course. Of course. I, I completely understand. I have um, a sister who's a novelist and a sister who is a poet, and um, I'm, I'm neither, but I... Um, I'm typically more drawn to prose than prose to than to poetry. I love poetry, but not. Uh, I can't relate to it quite as much. Um, I have not. But my, my own my own difficulty my own difficulty is that I usually feel that the poetry I've been somebody gives to me to read, and sometimes it's presumably some of the best poets in the world. Um, I always feel it's farting around with words, whereas prose is making them work. Yeah, that's probably that's probably true, or at least that's. I don't know. It's it's often it's so often individual. Um, in in what speaks to you and what it's almost of course, like poetry it's an sort of goes thing, yeah. under the surface of, in a way in a way that if your mind is more analytical, then it doesn't it doesn't work <clears> for you. Um, 
I haven't I haven't had a chance to read Smoke on the Mountain yet, but I am very excited to read it. Um, I know it's that, a wonderful book. Uh, I'm I'm almost sort of saving it for last because I'm so excited to read it. Um, <laughs> I'm just looking I'm looking savoring the expectation of it because it's such a beautiful thing to write about and it's such a fascinating thing to write about. And um, you don't. And of course, coming from a Jew, coming, coming from a Christian. Coming from a Christian with a Jewish background, she has all the, the all the sort of points are on her side. I mean, she understands completely the Jewish look at it all, and she also understands where it applies to the Christian world. And she makes that very plain in the book, that she understands both sides. And that is very lacking sometimes in the Christian perspective, is to remember the Jewish roots of it. The, um, for some reason, we well, often... Of course, Jesus was Jewish. Yes, and we know that, and yet oftentimes the Christian writings overlook that, or or we're just not in touch with it um, mm. in that context, like we should be. So it's a, or we are, but only hypothetically because we don't have, like you said, her her actual experience with it, where it's in your upbringing and your you completely understand it. We understand it in more anthropology anthropological this is a tradition we've read about that some people somewhere have have participated in but it's mm, I, I think that's, that's very true um, I you mentioned her novels and her and her nonfiction work and then of course Lewis had uh, is wildly popular for his novels but also for his nonfiction work um, and both him and Tolkien have written defenses of fiction um, some, some people put pose those two, you know, nonfiction or fiction against each other, which I is obviously not necessary. <laughs> but I was curious your thoughts about the the merits of both for communicating, you know, the truths of scripture, and and in which ways each format adapts to that better. If you understand, it's an interesting question. Um, it's interesting, an interesting idea that I don't think there's any difference necessarily in the way um, fiction would transmit more understanding of uh, of the Gospels, for example, or of the Bible or of Christianity than the actual uh, studying of it and writing a book about Christianity. Jack did both, as you know. Mm-hmm. Jack wrote uh, quite a lot of fiction, and his best ever work of fiction, I think, is a book, a book called Till We Have Faces, and what most people are unaware of is that that was a collaboration between my mother and Jack. And um, he wanted to have it published under both their names, but she refused to let him do so on the grounds that it would damage the uh, the sales of the book. Well, interestingly enough, he regarded it as his best ever book of fiction. And it's taken till now, just recently, that, that people study, students I mean, and, and, and great scholars have started to realize just the great depth and value of that book and I'm beginning to realize that it was probably his best ever work of fiction. It's taken a long time to get there. But um, it didn't sell very well at the time. In fact, he found it, he felt it was his best book that never really sold. I think now it's probably beginning to. But it was a, it was a collaboration between the two, and anyone who really knew them both well can hear the different voices in the writing. So I don't, I don't really know. The, the Two We Have Faces is a book which points out some huge... And very interesting facts about Christianity and how it should work. But then again, of course, he wrote other things like Mere Christianity, which is more, much more plain and outspoken. 
And um, The Great Divorce, for example, is a, is a classic example of how he has, has used, in a sense, a fictional piece to transmit enormous truth. So it, it's, that's a difficult question to, to answer. I think it requires a lot of study. It is quite possible that certain authors have the talent to use fiction, to, and of course one of them was George MacDonald, who, who Jack already is regarded as his literary master. Um, they have the ability to transmit hugely important Christian facts in the, in the, in the sort of coat uh, or costume of a, a work of fiction. And with both MacDonald and Jack, it, it works very, very well. Yeah, I'm so, um, I'm so glad that you bring up Till We Have Faces, which is, I agree, is probably his best work of fiction. And it's my personal, one of my personal favorites of all fiction ever, um, and has always been enormously meaningful to me. When, um, when, you, when you first had emailed us that your mother had helped write that, just a universal girlish shriek went up amongst myself and my co-hosts <laughs> of just joy. And um, it, because we don't obviously know them well, as you said, anybody who knows them well can recognize their distinct voices. We don't know them well, but we could hear a different voice there. Um, I've always regarded it, and I know Susanna has as well, as one, one of the, if not the best, female representations of a female from a male author. And the explanation of that is, of course, what you just said, that it wasn't entirely from a female author. It was from a male author and a female author working together. Um, exactly. I mean, there are some passages in there. I wasn't able to find all of them but um, when I was sort of re-skimming it. Um, but there are things in there that commentaries on, on men that are not even true in the in a in an objective sense of what kinds of people men are, but they are a very very true representation of how a woman and a certain kind of woman in a certain kind of scenario would feel about men or the men in her life. Yeah, that that's more or less what gives it away. That my mother was right hard hard bent right inside that book and still is. Um, she she of course had been through a divorce as well um, before she met Jack. Well, before she, no, she had met him, but it was after she met him, actually, before she and Jack really got together. Right. And uh, she, knew, she knew what that felt like. And she knew what it felt like to be rejected. Um, she, she, of course, knew all of the, the various things and feelings and emotions that female people go through, and men just don't. Most of us don't un just don't understand them. And it's difficult to try to get to grips with them, even, even in today's world. Um, but my mother really did understand, and of course, and she helped Jack. Well, when when Jack claimed that she had, she had, she in a conversation with someone else present, I forget who it was. Now, it might have been Roger Lansing Green, actually. He he was saying that uh, she had been such an enormous help at writing that book, and she immediately jumped on him and said, "Oh no, Jack! All I did was to teach you how to write from a feminine perspective and how to sound more like yourself." And she did teach him to write from a feminine perspective marvelously well. I, I remember reading it for the first time when I was only about 20, I think, or maybe 25. And um, I didn't know, of course, all of this about her collaboration or her influence. I don't think I knew at the time that it even happened after knowing her or, or after their marriage. And I remember reading certain things and thinking, how did he know? I didn't even know. <laughs> I couldn't have even articulated that that's how I felt. And yet he articulated yeah. my own heart to me somehow. 
And so when, when I find out exactly how and I learn about her background, it all clicks so beautifully into place. And um, it's, a really, it's a really beautiful demonstration of what God meant in the first chapter of Genesis when he says that it's not good for man to be alone. People sometimes misuse or abuse that, that passage, but really men and women need each other in order to communicate well, and understand others. They do, but I also believe I also believe more than that. I think men and women who are alone aren't really complete. I mean, a man who has not got a wife and a woman who doesn't have a husband and so forth, um, I don't believe that's a whole human being when you get the two parts separated. I believe the whole human being comes together when a man and a woman are together in holy matrimony, to put it sort of kind of archaically. I don't think there's any way around that. I don't think we're real. I don't think we're really there until we have at least experienced it, if, if it even if it fails, um, because we don't understand each other, and we never will understand each other unless we, we get together and stay together. Do you see what I mean? I do, I do. Or at the very least, I think perhaps we can have we can have an understanding between each other and the other kinds of love if we learn to be brothers and sisters to each other. I think that's probably could, that, that would be a huge help. Um, I should have, should have um, elaborated a little bit more and said if a man who has never had a sister and never had a, a cousin who's female has never had encounters with a female, I don't think you, one can be complete without some sort of experience of understanding how women think. And the women, how men think, for that matter. Absolutely. If we, I think, it's so, I think it's desperately important. Yes, we shouldn't exist in sort of these female spheres and these separate male spheres. We have to be, we have to be together and learn from each other and have sisters and have sisters in Christ or sisters in the flesh or, I, I mean, whatever. Yeah. Um, we are. I was one, when I was a little separate. boy. When I was when I was small. When I was small, I had a brother, and my brother um, and I didn't get on. And I always, always longed to have a little sister. I never did. I had a little, uh, for a short while, I had a uh, stepsister and, and first cousin once removed, who was uh, Renee's child, and her brother, of course, was there too. They came and lived with us in Statsburg for a while. And um, and I, oh, I went away from that experience when they left, um, sort of bereft in a sense, because I, I really wanted to, to know more about how this little girl would have, would have thought. She was a bit considerably younger than me. But I just keep kept looking around in my own mind and my own heart as to try to understand more and more what the what the emotional and mental difference was between the, the two species, if you like, or two uh, sexes of one species. And I never really found out until I got married. Yeah, I, I have a brother. Um, I have seven siblings, and it's quite a mm -hmm. few girls and then a, and then a boy and then quite a few girls and then a boy and and one of my um, younger brothers Joel when he got married you know um we were talking about it w when he would have children and he said well I I will love any child that I have of course but I I hope that I have girls first because I think every little boy should have older sisters which was absolutely agreed yeah I couldn't agree more <laughs> wise man it was very touching to me as one of the older sisters to, to hear that he had that experience. I'm sure. And I'm sure if I'm you sure. were a little girl that had older brothers, you'd feel the, ex the exact same slash opposite way. But, <clears throat> probably. Um, yeah, I only have younger I'm brothers. I'm afraid we're going to have to bring, I'm I'm afraid, listen, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this to a halt fairly soon because I have another commitment coming up in about five minutes. Yes, I'm so sorry. It's been, it's been 
um, digressing quite a bit, but that's that's well, it's been fun. Just that's quite all right because what we really want to hear is just anything that you would want to share with us, um, and we particularly wanted to hear about "Till We Have Faces" just because it's such a masterpiece, and the fact that it's a co-labor between them is even more. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, I've had people who have sort of exploded in my face when I've told them that, (laughs) not not believed it. But it is absolutely true that there was a collaboration, and it it works as a collaboration. The two of them together, I think, I'm just so sad that they never had time to write three or four more books together. I am sad, too. Because I think they would have taken the world by storm. uh, The longing that you just evoked in me by saying that... (laughs) To read those books that haven't existed, or not on this plane. Um, mm, true. I suppose in closing, since you don't have a lot of time, I, I think that reading your mother's poetry and reading about her life, what stands out to me is that she was a Christian artist, at least for some of her life, the later part of her life. But her work is, um, to steal a little from Lewis, is, is not safe. It's good, but it's not safe. It's, it's raw. And it shows, um, it reveals, you know, passions and and pains that are not strictly pious or ladylike seeming. And to me, that's a huge contrast. Wait wait a moment. I I don't think anyone needs to write, if they're writing the truth, I don't think they need to write it as if they were preaching. Exactly. I think Jack himself shied away, Jack himself shied away from that. My mother's books, my my mother's two novels are inc- amazingly instructive about how life should be led and how it can be destroyed um, by oneself. But there's nothing preachy about it. Exactly. But you learn an awful lot from reading them about, about Christianity and about how it could work if you got it right. Absolutely. The problem is very few of us ever get it right. Jack was one of the very few who did. And that's what I value so much about the work. I feel like today a lot of what passes for Christian art is just sort of it's not really art at all. It's just sort of some sort of safe, cleaned-up <laughs> version of life that's not a real life, but it's but it doesn't have a swear word in it, so it's okay or something. So, I'd be interested if you had any the oddest thing about that. One of the, one of the oddest things about that in America, one of the oddest things about that in America, is that you have invented all sorts of swear words that are actually completely innocuous. <laughs> I know. It's simply your attitude that makes them sound bad. I once got in an awful lot of trouble once in a lecture I was giving in front of an audience at a Q&A, because a woman asked me if we had any pets at Rathlinden Ministries, which we were running at the time. I said, yes, we have um, We have three dogs. She said, are they little girls or little boys? Which, of course, sort of chilled my spirit a bit. And I said, no, they're all bitches. And she went off her brain. <laughs> Even though you're How could you dare use such a terrible word for little puppy dogs? You know, I finally said, man, this has escaped your education that the word bitch is the technical term for any female of the canine species. And she sat down and all the audiences applauding. She sat down very embarrassed. But, I mean, it, it is not a bad word no. at all. No. And you've done that. Americans have done that with so many words. It's ridiculous. It, I knew someone once who wouldn't read, um, I think it was one of the space trilogy, um, because it had, cause Lewis had said, damn. And I just, the grief that I felt at the loss of what they were missing because of a fear, and it was in the appropriate context of something being damned to hell, which is a completely well, valid thing to say. Well, it, it not, it's, not, it's not a wicked word, it's not a swear word, it's an actual factual word. Exactly. If you do things the wrong way, you may well suffer damnation. It's not a swear, it's not an oath, 
No, it's just, anyway. Yes. I have to go, my dear, I'm afraid. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us and for chatting with me and for um, condescending to give me some of your time. And we... You're very welcome. So appreciate it. We appreciate your work and your mother's work. And um, we're looking forward to... Thank you. I, I hear you're the producer on the new Narnia series, so we're hoping that it does it justice this time around. Or a... Um, well, we'll do our best. One of the I'm sure <laughs> that your voice will be very valuable there. So thank you so much. Thank you indeed for, for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Have a lovely rest of your evening. And you too. God bless. God bless you too. Thank you so much. That was Douglas Gresham, author of Lenten Times, My Life with C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. Um, and as you heard, accomplished jack-of-all-trades in every, in every way, speaking to us about his mother and about God and about women and men and um, all the things that we are, we are interested in here at the Monstrous Regiment. Um, I highly recommend that everyone with an interest to learn more about Joy Davidman, who is a just beautifully accomplished person in a short time, um, and whose work really cuts to your heart. Um, her, her works of fiction are Weeping Bay, Anya. She wrote Smoke on the Mountain about the Ten Commandments. Um, there are two biographies about her. And God Came In by Lyle Dorset. Joy by Abby Santa Maria, if I'm reading my own handwriting correctly. And there is a semi-fictional biography, which Douglas has told us is actually the most accurate of the three despite being semi-fictional, which is Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Um, and of course, anyone who has not read Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold by Lewis and by Joy Davidman, um, should immediately go buy it and forget to do anything else until they have read it two or three times. Um, thank you for joining us today, and stay monstrous. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.